The best conversations I have with my colleagues are the ones that happen when no one is looking, when we're not 100% sure yet what to write. Hopefully, having conversations like this can help you figure out your own point of view. That's kind of our job as Washington Post opinions columnists. I'm Charles Lane, Deputy Opinion Editor. And I'm Amanda Ripley, a contributing columnist. We're going to bring you into these conversations on a new podcast called Impromptu. Follow Impromptu now, wherever you listen. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast, and hear from the minds transforming healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more with the help of AI. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. What's up? This is your boy, Lil Duval, and check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employers respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. From UFOs to psychic powers and government conspiracies, history is riddled with unexplained events. You can turn back now or learn the stuff they don't want you to know. A production of iHeartRadio. Hello, welcome back to the show. My name is Matt. My name is Noel. They call me Ben. We are joined, as always, with our super producer, Alexis, codenamed Doc Holiday Jackson. Most importantly, you are you, you are here, and that makes this the stuff they don't want you to know. It is Thursday, if you're hearing this, on the day it comes out, which means, fellow conspiracy realists, it is time for our weekly listener mail. Uh, Matt, Noel, and I have scoured correspondencies of um, varying sources, right? Uh, some some sinister stuff, some funny stuff, some mysteries, uh, some global events, some microcosmic events. And as always, we want to thank everybody who took the time to reach out either at our phone number, one eight three three std wytk at our email address, conspiracydieheartradio.com, or, you know, saying, uh, saying a name three times into a dark mirror. Uh, sorry if I spooked you. Uh, <laughs> but today, today, we have um we have some really fascinating stuff we ran into something a spoiler alert that i was not aware of over in argentina um and we'll get to that eventually but maybe we start a little bit closer to home today uh noel we received uh, a fascinating email 
about a murder mystery. He did. And I know he says all the time, and I think we typically follow through, but this one I do believe is full episode territory. Um, so I'm not going to go into all of the minutia, just kind of set up the story because it is one that I was not aware of. And it also involves something that I think we all are excited about is like old Hollywood kind of noir type historical murder mysteries. Um, this ticks all those boxes and it is a really, really interesting story. Hey, everybody, quick addendum here or, or pre-addendum, I guess. Um, after doing this segment, we reference a uh, source that is Vanity Fair um, that tells the amazing story that we're about to share with you about Doris Duke. Uh, what I failed to do in the segment was mention the name of the writer, the incredible Peter Lance. You can also check out his book, Homicide at Rough Point, um, which is available now anywhere you get books from Amazon, etc., cetera, uh, and find out more about the story. You can also find out more about Peter's work at PeterLance.com. We did, in fact, decide after talking with Peter um, that we are going to do a full deep dive, possibly two-part episode about this subject. So in the meantime, here's a little snapshot of the story uh, of Doris Duke, the socialite who got away with murder. The um, subject line of the email that came from a concerned citizen is uh, Doris Duke got away with murder. Who's Doris Duke, you ask? Not Patty Duke. No, mind you, this is Doris Duke, who was the heir to a a tobacco fortune. She was a multi-billionaire, or 1.3 billion. I guess that's not multi. She had a single billion, plus 300 mil, uh, when she died at the age of 80 in 1993, and is largely remembered for her philanthropic works. Um, She had an estate uh, in Newport, Rhode Island, that was called Rough Manor. Doesn't that sound like uh, something that's almost like a joke, like Faulty Towers or like what was the name of the uh, the uh, estate where, you know, from Grey Gardens, right? Mm-hmm. Grey Gardens, Rough Manor. I love it. It just kind of screams old Hollywood and, uh, and nefarious activities to me. So let me double back really quickly. Sort of set up my, my, my initial uh, excitement and surprise about this story. Um, but let's read a bit of the email from a concerned citizen. Um, hello, STDWITK, Stididwick. Uh, the T is silent. They don't want you to know that the wealthiest woman in the world may have gotten away with murder in 1966. I'm a former resident of Newport, Rhode Island, and while this summer playground for the ultra-wealthy has more than its share of sordid stories, none are more prevalent than the rumor of Eduardo Tirella's murder by Doris Duke. The story goes that Eduardo Torella was a longtime friend and art curator for Doris Duke. He was also like an interior designer for several of her estates. Um, but he decided to end that relationship and move to Hollywood to become a star. Uh, Duke, who was known for her violent temper um, and had escaped criminal charges for stabbing her common-law husband a few years prior, uh, lured Torella to her summer mansion Um, known as Rough Point, under the guise of needing his expertise to determine the authenticity and value of a statue. Uh, Torella and Duke went to purchase this artwork, but when Eduardo got out to open the large iron gate, Doris slid over to the driver's seat and the car lurched forward and killed him, pinning him against the the gate. This is me me talking. Um, They found him essentially like broken and completely dead, wrapped up in the axle, the rear axle of the car. Um, Back to the letter. She claimed it was accidental and no criminal charges were ever brought against her. There were always rumors that it was intentional homicide, but the police were either bribed or intimidated by the prospect of going against someone whose wealth was second only to John D. Rockefeller at the time. 
Um, again, she came from tobacco money, which, as we know, was big, big, big business back in those days when it was just like, you know, the coolest thing you could do was to smoke. And all the TV shows were sponsored by cigarettes and they weren't nearly the same kind of, you know, attention and awareness around, you know, uh, how bad cigarettes were for you. So it was just kind of like a, you had to ask people if it was OK not to exactly. smoke. Right? It was it was absolutely a, uh, a norm, you know, no question about it. Um, back to the letter, she poured a lot of money into Newport after Terrell's death, and her philanthropy has ensured her legacy and name still play a major role in the culture and economy of the city by the sea. However, just this year, a new witness came forward, and the police uh, opened an investigation. Robert Walker was a 13-year-old paper boy who witnessed the incident, but he did not come forward at the time because his father feared he wouldn't live to testify if he had. Thank you for taking the time to read this. I've been a listener for a certain amount of time and would love, I love that. It's very vague, but, but very cool. Uh, a certain amount of time. It's like a, a man of a certain age or something. Uh, and would love to hear what STDWITK thinks about Eduardo Torella's untimely death in Newport, Rhode Island. Sincerely, a concerned citizen. Um, and uh, this concerned citizen linked to several really, really great sources, including a Vanity Fair article from just July 15th of last year uh, called Homicide at Rough Point. And, and Matt, you uh, had some a little takeaway from just the image that is at the header of this uh, article showing uh, Madame uh, Duke, Doris Duke. And I, I, I immediately said she looks like a movie star. And you said she looks like a little well, something she, else, didn't you? I mean, who knows how she was feeling when this this photograph was taken. <laughs> But she's definitely she's looking that. away mm-hmm. and kind of down. Mm-hmm. Yes. And she doesn't have, you know, the look on her face is just kind of blank. It's very mm. demure. Yeah. <laughs> well, they chose that. Uh, photo of course, of course, of course. I do agree that that's the kind of look that a house cat gives you when you realize if this thing was you yeah. know, the size of a tiger, uh-huh. it would kill me. Right. That's, yeah. It's a cold, and it's a million cold percent. Look. It's, it's something, uh, yeah. I, it's something about the way unfair. her, her, her yeah. lips and her mouth is set uh, with the kind of edges sort of turned down and the sort of partial frown. And, the, and you're right, Matt, the way she's looking away, kind of down and away is very aloof and kind of this demure. But more than that, there's, all, there's sort of like a, an emptiness kind of in her eyes. And whether or not she did this thing, it was very clear that she was a difficult person. I mean, again, she, you know, it was, it was known that she stabbed her common law husband and, you know, got away with that. Um, Mm -hmm. But here's the thing that's most interesting. Her, a relative of hers uh, has actually said some really interesting things Um, in interviewing you know, folks and sources for this piece, uh, the author, the writer uh, encountered this quote from uh, Donna Lomire, um, who is Torella's niece. Uh, and she said that it wasn't just a cover up, but it was something even worse. And this quote is very chilling. She killed him twice. She destroyed his body, then eviscerated mm. his memory. Um, and the reason that, that she's giving that pretty, pretty hot take uh, is that in all of the writings about this, this woman, Doris Duke um, in her obituary, she's referred to and, and referenced, you know, for her philanthropy uh, and as being this heiress, this tobacco fortune, uh, this incident is never given more than like a line or two. Um, and even there, there's a there's a mention in this article about a, a biography of hers um, where the author 
uh, essentially writes about her in these very glowing, reverent terms. I learned a new word, actually, reading this article. Um, the author of the book, uh, The Silver Swan in Search of Doris Duke, uh, was a woman named Sally Bingham. And the author of the Vanity Fair piece refers to her reverence and the way she kind of writes about her in these glowing terms as bordering on hagiography. Uh, which is a word that I have mm. not heard before, and uh, I'm happy to know what it means. Mm-hmm. It actually refers to writing about the saints or like religious figures. You know, yeah. you're speaking of people in these like deified terms. Um, so there's more than a little bit of bias in some of this writing about her. And again, um, a lot of that philanthropy, or at least a big burst of it, came immediately following this incident. Um, she gave something equivalent to $200,000 in today's um, dollars uh, to restore historic Cliff Walk, uh, which is like a public kind of promenade <clears throat> like there um, behind some of these mansions, these rows of mansions on the Newport shoreline. Um, she gave around 10000 bucks to Newport Hospital, which is actually where she kind of holed up uh, after this incident, I guess, to get checked out, but maybe presumably also not to be bothered by the press. Um, And then she also set up a Newport Restoration Foundation, which renovated 84 colonial era mansions and buildings across uh, the city. Um, And she had more than a bit of a cozy relationship with some of the officials, too, who questioned her. And there was even a situation where the um, chief of police, uh, a guy named uh, Radice, um, R-A-D-I-C-E, when he retired, Rather than the job going to the next in command who should have gotten the job, it actually leapfrogged him and went to a third person who was the one who interviewed her the night of the event. Um, So there's just, you know, a lot of kind of sketchy um, potential palm greasings kind of going on here, at least opportunities for it. Um, But I don't want to go much further than this because the article is dense and there's obviously a lot of speculation around this and a lot of people coming forward uh, to talk about this. So I, I propose that we, we do an episode on this. I think it's a really fascinating story. Yeah. According to this Vanity Fair article, she was making $1 million a week in interest. In interest <laughs> alone, right? Dang. Wild. Mm-hmm. I would also recommend uh, Agreed, guys. And I would also recommend uh, for everybody listening now, if you want a, a bit of a <clears throat> an amuse-bouche, a bit of an appetizer to the entree of a Doris Duke murder episode. Do check out our earlier episode. Mm-hmm. Does being wealthy make you a bad person? <laughs> the answer, the answer is chilling. And the more, um, you know, I personally hate judging people by appearance, although I do think it's fun to, you know, roast a photograph every now and then everybody's got bad photos. That's just, that's the reality. Um, but if you were to describe her appearance in that Vanity Fair article we've been mentioning, it does very much look like the uh, dispassionate gaze of a very wealthy person. Uh, she was tight with Imelda Marcos, uh, got her out of some racketeering charges. Uh, it's First Lady of the Philippines. Um, this this goes deep, and I think this is also an opportunity to talk about other um, other homicides committed by the wealthy that are open secrets, uh, such as the Chappaquiddick incident, uh, which 
is the only reason that Kennedy didn't end up being president. That's that was right. how he and got that's out actually it. something that's uh, sort of satirized in the first season of Succession. If anyone's not watching that show wants to have a kind of a fly on the wall perspective in the rooms where these kinds of high level, you know, people are hanging around making deals, that show I think does it better than just about any that I've ever seen. Um, ben, you mentioned her relationship with Imelda Marcos. She was also really tight with Michael Jackson. Mm. Um, you know, once you get to a certain level of wealth, you kind of like those are the only real friends you can have it's like sort of the rules right um everyone doesn't doesn't go by that but like it certainly feels like that ends up being the case she also had a long line of uh you know gentlemen callers let's just say uh, she apparently had a uh, very high sex drive and and was was not ashamed of, of of it at all and was very open about her multiple um relationships and you know lovers and all that uh one of whom was general george Patton. so she was rubbing more than elbows with some pretty uh pretty powerful folks mm. And, you know, again, we do want to treat this kind of as like an amuse-bouche, like you said, Ben, uh, for what will ultimately be a pretty um, filling meal. But we do know that she fought quite viciously um, in court uh, to keep from having to pay uh, any kind of damages to the family of of this uh, this gentleman that, that she killed, Eddie, uh, Eduardo Eddie Torella. Um, he made, you know, in the last year of his life, something in the neighborhood of $50,000, which would have been roughly $300,000, you know, in today's money. Um, and it could easily be argued that he would have made money, you know, along those lines for many, many years to come, if not more, because he was heading towards a really potentially lucrative career in Hollywood. Like he had already, um, I think he had, um, uh, consulted on a Hollywood, a big Hollywood film, uh, had just come back from that. And that was why he was going to tell her that he, you know, that he wasn't going to be working for her anymore because he had this, you know, new life that he was going to pursue. Um, so the family, I think, pursued a pretty modest sum, you know, in, in these damages. Um, but she did everything in her power to make sure that they got nothing, um, which in and of itself is a sign of kind of a, a coldness, you know. But I say we leave it there for now and look forward to really digging into this this uh, topic because the story's got a lot of twists and turns and goes to some very interesting places, especially in the light of new revelations. So um, let's take a quick break and um, then come back with some more listener mail. The 2024 presidential campaign features two candidates who are very well known to Americans. And yet there's complexity at every turn. Criminal trials for one of those candidates. Young voters who are angry. The Campaign Moment podcast from The Washington Post gives you what matters. I'm Aaron Blake, and I'm covering my 10th election cycle. My colleagues and I have insights that you won't find anywhere else. So follow the Campaign Moment right now, wherever you're listening. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snagajob is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs, on-demand, tempt to hire part-time or full-time. You name the position, warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, Podcast producer? Yeah, Snagajob's got a worker for that. With their easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? 
Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. Visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia, movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. All right, we are back and moving from Rough Point or Rough Manor or whatever it was called, and we are heading to a message from Will that you're about to hear in your ears. Hey guys, uh, my name's Will. Um, I've got a story about my great uncle. Uh, he was three star general in the Air Force named Robert Bond. He crashed an enemy MiG flying out of Green Lake back in the early 80s and died. And due to that, they very nearly had to had to make light of uh, several different uh, government programs. Sorry, I, I kind of went blank. Um, but yeah, he, he crashed he crash landed this MiG that we weren't supposed to have at Green Lake. Government tried to cover it up. Being a three-star general was a little harder than normal. But anyway... There's plenty to read about it. I can send you some links or something if you're interested, but I just thought that uh, it might be a rabbit hole you'd want to go down. Uh, feel free to use my voice if you'd like, and you can contact me. You know, whatever. Thanks a lot. There we go. Mm. Now that's how you leave a voicemail, Matt. Yes, here I am. Here's what I'm going to tell you. Contact me. Goodbye. <laughs> <laughs> Um, and in this case, it's someone telling us uh, just an intense story about their relative, their great uncle, a three-star general in the Air Force that crashed a MiG and lost his life and it out of Groom Lake, uh, of all the places. For anyone who doesn't just know that term off the top of your head, that is Area 51 and the various areas out there in the Nevada test site, as it is so lovingly known. Yeah. <laughs> It's kind of like a Heinz 57 mm -hmm. thing, too. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Where's Area 59? Where's Area yes. 14? <laughs> yes. Uh, before we, well, I'll, we'll get to it. Just remind me to talk about Area 25 before we leave this. So if, mm -hmm. I mean, first of all, thank you for telling us that story. My goodness. If you could not hear through the phone recording, because sometimes the quality isn't that amazing uh, just because of the system itself, it is Lieutenant General Robert M. Bond, that is the person whom Will is referring to, his great uncle. Uh, again, Lieutenant General Robert M. Bond. You can search about him 
If you wish, on the Air Force's website, af.mil, you can read all about him and his past. You know, before we get into what happened to him, I just want to talk about some of the aircraft, Ben, that I'm assuming you, you know, over the years on car stuff, all things that float, fly, or drive. No. Float, fly, swim, or drive. Yeah. Float, fly, drive. (laughs) Anyway, I I know it's stuck in my head. I don't know if I got it fully correct, but (laughs) I knew the essence of it. Um, (laughs) Just some of the aircraft that he flew over his very long career. The. F-86 Sabre, which is also known as the Sabre Jet, is a very interesting uh, piece of machinery that was flown, I believe, oh gosh, uh, fairly early. I think it started in 1947, maybe, like just right at the end of the World War II's, <laughs> you know, all of them World War II's. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> it's like a Street Fighter vibe. It took a yeah. while to count to three. Yeah. Yep, exactly. Uh, So a cool plane, the F-105 Thunder Chief, which is just an awesome-looking plane, the fighter-bomber in the 1950s. There's the Phantom II or the F-4, which is, God, man, just such – just you can look all of these up if you want to. I'm just right now literally looking at their Wikipedia pages because you can get through their – through Wiki Commons, some of the photography that was released by you know, the Air Force over the years. Really cool to look at them. I remember as a kid having posters of these kinds of fighter jets in my room just because I thought they were so awesome. Oh, yeah. The one that he was supposedly flying on the day that he crashed and died, the MiG-23, which is similar but not the same as the MiG-21 which was uh, a very famous Soviet Union fighter jet that you've seen in probably many, I'm sure, fictional stories about that time. Mm-hmm. So well, let's talk about what happened, why this was a big deal. Groom Lake Area 51 is still not an official thing for much of the world. It's a rumor. Area 51, somewhere out there in the Nevada desert, the government's doing weird stuff out there with stuff that flies around. Not sure what it is. Is it, are they testing aircraft? Are they, you know, taking apart stuff that crash landed in Roswell? Or maybe they're building new stuff from that Roswell crash. All kinds of rumors swirling about this place, Area 51, uh, which continue today, obviously. But back then, we're talking the 1980s. In this case, 1984, Area 51 is very much a legendary place. And Groom Lake, Area 25, all of those uh, in the Nevada test site. So a person with such a distinguished career within the Air Force to be flying, essentially test flying a MiG Soviet fighter jet in the 1980s. Remember, Cold War is still going on. So the United States having access to Soviet Union uh, weaponry is... You know, maybe not a super secret thing, but it's at least something that you don't want to openly talk about if you're doing any kind of combat missions, test combat missions with your enemy's aircraft. That's probably something you want to keep, you know, quiet about. So according to the story, which you can find in several places, I found it in Time Magazine. It's An article titled Mystery Flight Over Nevada. It was published May 14th, 1984. You can actually find that on content.time.com. 
And a shout out to Fred Hoffman, the journalist who originally uh, discovered the information, which make no mistake, Uncle Sam was ardently fighting to keep this all a secret. Mm -hmm. Um, I feel a little Scooby-Doo saying, and they almost got away with it, too. (laughs) Well, Uh, if it hadn't been for those crazy MIGs. Right, right. There we go. I mean, it's also, you know, um, in their defense, it makes absolute sense to keep that uh, as close to top secret as possible. And I think they didn't even, they they wouldn't even deny it, right? It was one of those I can neither confirm nor deny kind of situations until the uh, article that you just mentioned hit the press. Yep, exactly. Uh, you can read it. It's a very short read if you want to look into it. But the official story when time went to press with this was that he was flying out of Nevada's Nellis Air Force range. And, you know, while doing this test flight from there, he did have a another aircraft flying behind him to kind of watch over him. But he was flying a much faster vehicle. And yeah, it, it went out of control. And unfortunately, he was unable to stabilize an aircraft, the aircraft once it went out of control, at least according to the the story that you can read now. And he attempted to eject. And when he did so, he was going very, very fast. The estimates were around Mach 2 uh, when he actually attempted to, to eject or maybe perhaps a little bit slower than that. But his parachute just got torn to shreds and uh, he suffered injuries as he attempted to eject and he did not make it. Um, the aircraft, it said, flew down at a 60 degree angle into the desert. But just to jump back to that article at the time when it was published, I'm going to read you a quote from it. Quote, then came an even more intriguing, though also unconfirmed report. Bond was actually flying a Soviet built MiG-23 Flogger, the primary fighter craft of the Soviet Air Force, with a maximum speed of some 1700 miles per hour. That possibility drew attention to a little-known aspect of American military training. The U.S. has managed to assemble a mini-squadron of between 4 and 15 of these floggers, that's the MiG fighter jets, as well as at least a dozen of the more easily obtainable MiG-21s. And it's a really interesting thing where it gets into arms deals, where the United States purchased these, these craft from Egypt. Because Egypt, they were good friends with the Soviet Union. There was a lot of arms trading going on between those two parties. And then the United States came in and said, hey, let's we'd love to buy some of those Soviet aircraft off of you so we can use them for training. They probably didn't say that in the room when they made the deal. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but, uh, <Yeah. laughs> but that's what happened. And it this whole story just makes me imagine what the United States, what China, what Russia are all doing in their secret or as secret as they can be bases across the world right now, training with other aircraft, other, you know, maybe naval vessels or prototypes of such things. Um, Or even, you know, we talked about a little bit before, I believe when we mentioned the strange stuff going on at a test site in China, where, where they had built like a, a mobile version of an aircraft carrier that they could fire stuff at do you remember this Mm -hmm. yes yeah absolutely and that's a that's a normal thing to do it's it's a very smart thing to do honestly because you'll be able to get experiential training you'll have the um first hand 
knowledge of how things can play out. It's the reason why militaries conduct war games constantly, because all the technology that you might possess or that you could buy or manufacture isn't going to be worth as much if you don't know what the other side has. So they're definitely testing the MiG weaknesses. They already knew about some of the stability issues. Um, but right now, it's safe to assume that multiple militaries are doing their best to get the hardware from other militaries, other foreign powers. That's why when the Osama bin Laden raid occurred, there was such to-do about the stealth helicopter. Mm. If you guys mm-hmm. remember that, mm-hmm. that was one of the big, that was one of the big losses was that copter crashing. Mm. And that copter, by the way, did not officially exist until it crashed. <laughs> right. Yeah. And there was a whole mission to like figure out what to do afterwards. Oh, crap. Mm-hmm. <laughs> what do we, we do now? <laughs> uh, well, guys, it's making me think more and more about the used arms trade or the market, yeah. right? And we've, we've talked about that mm-hmm. a little bit before, how much of the military equipment ended up going to sheriff's offices and local police departments when you're talking about MRAPs and some of, those, uh, some of the other weaponry, even small arms. It makes me wonder about the bigger stuff that I don't think we've ever covered on our show before, like what that actual market looks like right now. Uh, yeah. And strategically selling your enemies and others who may oppose you at some point your old stuff while you're developing and building the new stuff. Uh, mm. I don't know. That to me is really interesting. Yeah. From AK 47s to uh, retrofitted carriers uh, or destroyers in, in the world of maritime warfare. Uh, it is a huge and silent industry. And a lot of countries have deep tension about who gets to sell what to whom, you know, um, and and not for nothing. I mean, it, it's not a secret. Uh, they don't talk about it too often in your mainstream news outlets, but the U.S. makes a ton of cash selling weapons to other countries, and those countries do things that do not align with U.S. values as stated to voters. Yeah. That is like the most diplomatic way to put it. And I also want to point out here, Matt, that what the general was doing at the time of his unfortunate accident was a necessary thing. You had to test the craft, you know, and this guy had so much experience by that point that he was he was probably at the top of a very short list of people who both had the clearance to fly a plane that didn't exist and the know-how to do it. Yeah, um, but he, his age was called into question almost immediately upon right. hearing of his crash. 54. He's right. 54, yeah. and often, at least from what I've been reading, you wouldn't send someone up of that age in an aircraft alone like that. You would have a co-pilot for safety just because of the physical needs to to fly that plane. However, he had just completed at least one major test of his of his fitness, and he you know, he passed it. You know, also, man, this brings up another question, a a bigger conversation, I would say, which is the cover-ups that occur when things go wrong during secret operations. You know, this is, I mean, this is a real thing. And these are active conspiracies. Will, first, thank you so much for sharing this story with us. Uh, But secondly, you are far from alone, my friend. These are Again, active cover-ups, they are by necessity. 
most times, uh, but we do live in a world where people can one day get that letter that just says, you know, your spouse, your partner, your family member, your child has passed away. And in some cases, there might be a fake or vague explanation. And in some other extreme cases, there's no explanation. Because to explain what happened would compromise whatever they were doing. And that does occur. Uh, If you are hearing this, you have a story similar to Will's, uh, we would like to hear from you because I know there are more out there. I know there are many, many more out there. When did this even go public? When did that Times article come out again, you said? Times article came out very soon after. So I believe it was in April of 84 when General Bond actually passed. And then this came out in May, mid-May. Yeah. And if that article hadn't have come out, would the Bond family have learned the truth? I mean, journalists are doing serious work. Also, I can't believe it just occurred to me, Will, that is the coolest last name. That guy could really, he could like one-up James Bond. Yeah. He's like Bond, General Bond. Yeah, General Bond. Everybody called him Bobby, too, so he was Bobby Bond. It's kind of General Bobby Bond. I like it. Rolls off the tongue. Oh, man. So thanks so much, Will. Definitely write in if you've got a story where we, the public, have been fed, you know, an official story, right, in the news about something that occurred, but you know... It was something else because you had a family member maybe involved or privy to something. Gosh, I want to hear that. But only tell us if you're okay with us sharing it because we'll get we'll get too excited. I'll, I'll get too excited. Well, that's it for now, Will. We'll be right back with another message from not you, Will. Uh, you, the the other the other person specifically you. <laughs> The 2024 presidential campaign features two candidates who are very well-known to Americans. And yet, there's complexity at every turn. Criminal trials for one of those candidates. Young voters who are angry. The Campaign Moment podcast from The Washington Post gives you what matters. I'm Aaron Blake, and I'm covering my 10th election cycle. My colleagues and I have insights that you won't find anywhere else. So follow the Campaign Moment right now, wherever you're listening. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snag a job is the all in one solution for hiring high quality employees who can cover all your needs on demand, tempt to hire part time or full time. You name the position warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop. Podcast producer? Yeah, Snag a Job's got a worker for that. With their easy to use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snag a Job is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. Visit snagajob.com or text snag to 2424. Two four to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. A new season of Bridgerton is here. And with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabrielle Collins. And this season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. Colin Bridgerton has returned from his travels abroad. Is betrothal written in the stars for the eligible bachelor? Meanwhile... The ton is reverberating with speculation of who holds Lady Whistledown's pen. We're discussing it all. 
I sit down with Nicola Coughlin, Luke Newton, Shonda Rhimes, and more to offer an exclusive peek behind the scenes of each episode of the new season. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix. Then fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to catch a new episode every Thursday. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow the global story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. And we have returned to follow up on the cliffhanger we left you with <laughs> at the break. Uh, you heard us say you, specifically you, and you may have thought, is it me? Specifically me? Well, yes, it is. If your name is Caro. I, I don't know if we do an applause to <laughs> you there, uh, but this was an awesome letter. I'm just going to share the information as is. This is something that I had not heard about. Have you heard about this before? I don't even know what we're going to talk about yet. So I'm going to learn with everybody else. We're going to jump right in and talk about it. (laughs) Okay. Peek behind the curtain, folks. Sometimes when we, uh, because we live in this world and we we go so deep into things, sometimes one of us will learn about something and have that holy moment and then write to the other guys on our group thread or however we're talking to each other. And then the other two will be like, oh yeah, no, that's, that's definitely a thing. Like, no spoilers, but Thunderbirds. I'm really excited about that <laughs> yeah. one. Oh, anyway. dude. Mm. <laughs> well, with this one, and this is another occurrence, just yeah. to give more of that curtain stuff. Uh, when some of the emails come through, some of the messages come through, uh, just by in having to go through a bunch of them, you'll get, or my mind will at least track maybe 20% of the contents of each email that comes through. But that 20%, I got Buenos Aires and Amia. That's that's what I remember from this, Ben. And I was like, okay, I need mm-hmm. to look something about that up later. But I hadn't done it yet, so I'm excited. <laughs> so here we go. Here we go. Uh, Caro says, Dear Ben, Doc, Matt, Noel, I just stumbled upon stuff they don't want you to know a few months ago, and it's become my new podcast love, so thank you guys for putting together such an enjoyable show. Hats off to codename Doc there, by the way, for classing up the place. <laughs> yes, Matt, cheers. Uh, you can't see us, folks, but we're, we're cheersing. <laughs> we're cheersing Doc. I, for some reason, have a Hello Kitty glass today. <laughs> what I just week. have a Topo Chico. Uh, <laughs> Not sponsored. Topo Chico. So, uh, so here's what Caro says. Would love to hear you all's take on the 1994 AMIA bombing in Buenos Aires, Argentina. It was a suicide bombing on the Argentine-Israelite Mutual Association building, which killed 85 people and injured over 300. Both the government of Iran and Hezbollah are accused of being involved, and there is a lot of just general shadiness and covering up associated with this event from both the Iranian and Argentinian governments. For example, former Argentinian president and current vice president Cristina Fernandez 
because Nick Kirchner is accused of covering up Iran's part in the bombing. And one of the key witnesses, Alberto Niesman, who filed a 300-page document detailing de Kircher's role in the event, turned up dead literally hours before he was supposed to testify against Uh her. Government officials, I know, government officials ruled it as a suicide. Yeah, sure, says Caro. Also, two of the suspects in the planning of the bombing, Molson Raze and Ahmed Vahidi, are now top-ranking officials in the new Iranian government under Ibrahim Rasi. Then there is alleged involvement from Israel as well, rumors that their secret service, Mossad, hunted down and assassinated most of the perpetrators of the attack. Mm. Anyway... I could go on and on because there is a lot more to this and reading about it has been a wild ride, but I'd love to hear what you all have to say about it if this interests you as much as it has me. Hope everyone's having a superb day. Cheers, Caro. Oh, man, this is uh, this is blowing my mind. This is revelatory to me. I I was not aware of this, but from just this letter, Matt, and just the cursory stuff I was looking into, uh, this is ticking all the boxes for stuff they don't want you to know. I mean, Iran is known for proxy warfare. I mean, so is the U.S., obviously. But uh, Argentina itself has such an interesting, deep, and at times conflicting uh, history, right? So initially, this reminded me of other large cover-ups, especially with the the idea of witnesses being assassinated. Like, think of the journalist who was looking into corruption in Malta. Uh, Think of the various people who died in the failed prosecution of the Detroit affair in Belgium. This is nuts. This is wild. Let's let's get into it. Let's talk just a little bit about it because this is going to come back as a full episode, I think. I think we have to do it. Yeah, uh, please. I'm, I'm sorry. I'm getting distracted by looking at some of the imagery to come out of this event, as well as um, checking out the timesofisrael.com article that you posted, Ben. Sorry, I got a little Mm. lost in there just because I don't know. (laughs) I don't know a lot about this. Yeah. Yeah, it makes me want to dive in pretty deeply. Well, yeah, so think about it this way. There's an excellent New Yorker article called Death of a Prosecutor from 2015, which is about Alberto Niesman's demise. See, now I would have read uh, that, shout out. Uh, by the way, but <laughs> I ran out of articles. So anyway. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the paywall uh, by Dexter Filkins. So here's a way for us to bring this home. If you live in the U.S., imagine that the one, one of the most famous courtroom prosecutors ever straight up said, the president did 9-11, right? Like the, like the president of the U.S. was in charge of this attack um, or was in charge of covering it up. That's what happened with de Kirchner and Niesman. He said that this politician had orchestrated, at the very least, a plan to cripple the investigation in this attack. And this was the bloodiest terrorist attack in the entire history of the country. So here's what happened. There was a suicide van bomb attack, and the AMIA, the Asociación Mutual Israelita Argentina, is a big deal. Argentina is home to a large Jewish community, about 230,000 people, give or take, That is the largest in Latin America, 
It is, in fact, the sixth largest in the world outside of the nation of Israel. And when people started investigating this, things almost immediately got very murky and very dirty. You know, uh, multiple countries and multiple individuals were accused of being involved. Obviously, this had to take some careful coordination and planning. This is not this is not something that happened because one guy woke up and caught a wild hair. Even Pope Francis signed a petition for justice in the bombing case. The federal judge who was in charge of the case in August of 2005 was impeached and removed due to suspicions that he was purposely mishandling the investigation. What? Somebody, yeah, somebody doesn't want the public of Argentina to know how this all happened or who was behind this bloody, horrific attack. The prosecutor, Alberto Nisman, before he died, he had claimed in 2006 that Iran was targeting Argentina because Buenos Aires had decided to suspend a nuclear deal with Tehran. They were going to uh, transfer nuclear technology. But people still, I don't know, people aren't 100% on that story because the contract itself between Iran and Argentina was never actually terminated. They were just negotiating from like 1992 to 1994 when the attack occurred. So Neesman is arguing that the president wanted to cover up Iran's role in the tragedy, role in the attack, because they needed the deal with Iran to work out. Mm. And by the way, when we say he died, he was murdered. Yeah. He didn't slip and fall. The guy was killed on purpose, premeditated. And if you look at the timeline, which we will do in our upcoming episode, um, it's pretty hard not to think that the murder was connected to his his prosecutorial career. Yeah, th- look, this is a dumb question, Ben, and I'm sorry, you probably already covered it, but is the official story that he was, it was homicide, he was murdered, or is it still that he killed himself? Or was it just that he was found dead with that? Because I think there was a gun found by him. He was shot dead yeah. with a gun, there was a gun found with him or something? Yeah, you're right. And to be more objective, I guess we should save our conclusions for the full episode there, Caro, but he was found dead in his house on January 18th, 2015. And there was a Bursa Thunder 22 handgun found beside him. And this was again, just hours before he's going to the Congress of Argentina to talk about the paper he had published, which was like maybe a little South of 300 pages, 280 something. Anyway, according to the autopsy, once they found the body, he had actually died the previous day. That afternoon on January 17th is when he expired. Uh, They also found an entry bullet wound to his right temple with no exit wound. His body was in the bathroom. There were no signs of forced entry or robbery. And here's one. I'm just going to throw some plot twist at Mm -hmm. you, man. Okay, so no sign of forced entry, but a locksmith who was familiar with the guy's apartment said he found a hidden entrance to the apartment and that it was open. 
What? When he came on the scene. Yeah, right? Right? Like a secret crawl space that was just hanging? <sighs> or what? what? Of course he had a secret mm-hmm. entrance. I need to get one of those. I know. We need them. You know, at, at one of my old houses, I actually made one. It was so bootleg. I just, you know, I have a lot of books. So I had like arranged shelves to make the room look smaller than it was. Was it the cottage house? <laughs> the cottage house. <laughs> was, that one could have used a secret remember? entrance. Yeah, yeah. God, that was a weird place, man. We've lived in some weird places, mm-hmm. folks. Mm-hmm. Uh, I used to live in a castle, no kidding, built by a very short man by hand. It was, it, it was made out of house. coral. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Just so. Uh, we are adding some levity mm-hmm. here, but this, this is very much a serious case, and it's strange that there are so many questions that remain. One, yes, Niesman did, he did own firearms. He had two guns that were registered. The gun that was found by him, this little twenty two caliber, was not his. It was definitely the murder weapon. But it belonged to his assistant, who apparently lent it to him. That's the story so far. One of the guns was transferred to someone else in 2009. The other has yet to be found to this day. There's a test you can do to determine, there are a couple tests you can do to determine whether there's gunshot residue on someone's hands. And Niesman was clean. So it seems that unless the testing was off, seems that he did not fire the gun himself. According to the investigators, there was no sign of like a physical attack or struggle. And one investigator even said there was nothing suggesting the presence of other people at the crime scene, other than, you know, the fact that there was a secret entrance to the guy's apartment and it was wide open. DNA from a second person was found in a coffee cup on the kitchen sink, or they announced that it was found. So, There are still so many questions about this, and this is classic stuff they don't want you to know. We're going to dig into this. We're going to shake it, see what comes loose. We're going to pull the strings. We'll bag up the badgers. We'll go down a rabbit hole, all the idioms here. Uh, And while we're doing that, and we'll we'll talk a little bit more about this, uh, just some of the things that immediately stood out to us. But while we're working on that episode, uh, we do want to give a shout out to a program on Netflix. Oh, yes. Uh, and I have, we have not watched this. I don't think I haven't watched this yet. But you can on Netflix find uh, Niesman, the prosecutor, the mm-hmm. president and the spy. You can find this right now, I believe. Yep. It's playing in my ears while I'm trying to talk <laughs> to you and it is distracting me. But it looks like it's a multi-part mm-hmm. series here. It's an yeah, entire docuseries. And, and the investigation continues. In March of 2015, a private investigation set up by Niesman's family concluded that his death was not suicide. It was an act of homicide. Um, the report had gone pretty in-depth and, and sobering stuff. It contained pictures of his body as well. Uh, the forensic investigators that were originally appointed by Argentina's Supreme Court did say that it was a suicide, and it's become one of those conclusions that the public just doesn't accept. Similar ways to the JFK story here in the U.S., which is, as we found earlier, it is by far the most widely accepted conspiracy theory in this country. So with all this, i got to throw in some other stuff. He was allegedly 
in touch with the CIA, the FBI, making some uh, unofficial calls with the U.S. Embassy. Uh, he was accused of money laundering. This this goes deep. What we're seeing here really, Caro, is a it's not a lack of motive and it's not a lack of suspects. It's quite the opposite. It's a wealth of possible motives. It's an abundance of possible suspects. Now it's sort of um, a needle in the haystack to figure out which one could have been responsible. And, you know, when we when we finish looking into this in this upcoming episode, uh, it may be possible that we say he did commit suicide. I don't think we're going to find that, but uh, that's that's what this show is about. That is what we do. And we are grateful to dive in with this. Give us a lead. We're dogs with a bone. What's another animal that has a thing we could say? I don't want to say dog with a bone anymore. I feel like that's been done. Oh, I get it. We're <laughs> cats with a cradle. What? Did I do that in a previous episode? Platypus. Like I just had deja vu. We're, we're a platypus <laughs> with a papaya. No. Okay. They're not all going to work. Uh, so, mm-hmm. so also uh, send us your suggestions for idioms that we could use in place of dog with a bone. Uh, ooh, mm-hmm. A fancy chicken. With uh, what's an F thing we can put in there? Fancy uh, or a chicken flange flange? <laughs> Have you seen fancy chickens? I did not know the the conversation would go this way. Yeah, fancy chickens. They are fancy. It's not an ironic All name. Right. They're super fancy. They are. Fancy. I just love the idea. The first person who ran into them was like, "That is one classy bird right there. That is a fancy chicken." <laughs> my god <laughs> so give us your opinion on other fancy animals uh what does a fancy chicken have with it you know the way that a dog has a bone oh my gosh uh we're getting ourselves in deep water here but we'll get to the surface you know what i mean we're not going to get chapaquiddicked <laughs> but we but oh, uh, we are doing this with your help as we always say we are so grateful for your time fellow conspiracy realists uh, we always get the best leads from you and from your fellow listeners. So thanks to everyone who has written in, who has contacted us. On a personal note, thanks to everybody who reached out to me uh, regarding some recent events. Um, I haven't responded to everybody, but I will try to do so. And maybe we'll talk about it a little bit more toward the end of the year. But in the meantime, the point is, the main point is, this show can't happen without you. So we want your help. Send us your ideas. Send us new leads. Tell us about other cover-ups. Tell us about other accidents that have occurred in the world of secret military experiments uh, and projects. Tell us about other accidents that have occurred and been covered up in the world of the military. Tell us about murders by very wealthy people. People who got away clean. I'm sure there are sadly many out there. Uh, And tell us what you think of this bombing in 1994. Uh, We try to be easy to find online. That's right. You can find us on Facebook and Twitter and YouTube where we are conspiracy stuff. And if you don't mind, if you've listened to this and you enjoyed it, why don't you head over to Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to this show and give us a review. It just helps us out giving us a little more Ooh, yeah. a little oomph, right? A little, a little <laughs> makes our step a little nicer and uh, increases the chances yeah. that we get to do this more often and, and continue to do the, it. Uh, end of the year, if we get enough favorable reviews, our boss gets us a fancy chicken. 
Oh. A live one. Yes. A live one. A live yeah, one that we get to keep as a, and everything. a yeah. friend. A pet. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, Professor Fancy Pickles. And yes. uh, we're really excited about yes. that. Didn't go to chicken college for eight years to be called Mr. Fancy Pickles. Oh, boy. Oh, what a week. Uh, yes. Uh, so what else can they do yes, if they if don't you use social to media? episodes like Big Data, if you have somehow traveled forward in time and listened to our episode on workplace surveillance, which will be coming out. Uh, hail, fellow time travelers. Our job already knows. Yeah. And you have listened to these things and decided to eschew social media, but you still want to contact us. Why not give us a good old telephone call? We are one eight three three S T D W Y T K. You will have a brief message at the beginning. You'll have three minutes. Those minutes are your own. Go nuts. Get weird with it. We have some people who call us regularly, and it's almost like hearing a radio show. And it always always makes my day talking to you. Fog rolls in, and so we uh, Viking. And you more broccoli, Sacramento, California. Yes, yes, absolutely. Uh, Join their ranks. All we ask is that you let us know if we can use your name and or voice on air. Give yourself a cool moniker. Who doesn't love those? Tell us what's on your mind. And most importantly, don't censor yourself. If you have a story that needs more than three minutes, write it out. Give us the uh, ancillary links. Give us the images. Give us the video. We want it all. So drop us a line via electronic mail. We read every email we get where we are. Conspiracy at iHeartRadio.com. Stuff They Don't Want You to Know is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow the global story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia, movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details. I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series called Blooded, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halpern. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way, untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one case, but almost a dozen. Listen to Cold Blooded, The Apollo Gym Murders on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner. Gene! Gene Fodor! Gene, was good? 
But be careful, because the worst trips result when two partners have two different agendas. The CIA really need your help, Gene. Freeze, Americano! Huh? Oh. Gene, run! Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.